Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury has some advice for people who were laid off during the pandemic. Insolvency trustee Mike Braga talks solutions for consumers feeling the heavy weight of personal debt. And pollster Mario Canseco has some new numbers on our changing sentiments towards pipelines. So let's get started. Here's a a line from our next guest's most recent column. Thousands of Canadian employees were laid off for over two years during the pandemic, left to bide their time in a proverbial purgatory. Some went on to find new jobs. Others sued their employers, while many others patiently waited to be called back to work. The columnist headed, employees laid off during the pandemic may be on the brink of a big payday. Always a pleasure to welcome the author of said column from Workley Law in Toronto, employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury. Good morning, Sunira. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, Sunira. Now, the, uh, the one of the uh, tools that w- some of the provinces were uh, created for themselves because of this emergency was uh, something called the Infectious Disease Emergency Leave. Now, that was effective in Ontario. Did other Canadian provinces employ similar tools? So we know that in, for example, in BC, from what I what I know, that there was an extended temporary layoff period as well to ease uh, the hardships on businesses to keep employees connected uh, with their jobs. So I think under the Employment Standards Act, for example, in BC, uh, temporary layoff longer than 13 weeks um, uh, is is typically what. Uh, you, you were allowed to do in BC, right? Um, in any twenty-week period, um, or about three months. But um, I believe that was extended as well during the COVID nineteen sort of emergency layoff provisions that were also implemented in BC. So they weren't amend- they weren't intended to be permanent, just like in Ontario. Mm-hmm. But most provinces, like BC, saw an increased extension to the temporary layoff provisions. Okay, and so are, are different provinces, obviously because the toolkit was a little different in, in each jurisdiction, but ultimately is the solution going to be the same regardless of where you where this all happened, Sonera? Yeah, yes, it would be. So many employees, Sterling, right when they were laid off, right at the beginning of the pandemic, they went to employment lawyers. They said, no way, no how. I'm going to assert a constructive dismissal. Right now, I'm going to sue for damages. Okay. Some employees, though, decided, I'm going to wait. I hope my employer calls me back. But as we saw, like in Ontario, the infectious disease emergency leave or the equivalent across other provinces, if you're in a different province in Ontario, look to see what it was in your province because they are likely coming to an end like they have in Ontario. What that means is if you've been waiting to be recalled back to work and your infectious disease emergency leave has been extended time and again, Mm -hmm. what that means is now your employer is either required to call you back to work or issue you a termination package. Many employers might have forgotten about you. Many hope that they will never hear from you. But if you were laid off pursuant to a, a pandemic Type layoff, mm-hmm. you could be on the brink of what could be a meaningful payout on termination. You are now entitled to why I refer to as your homecoming. The, the pandemic termination provisions have ended. 
you are now entitled to get back to work. And what is the onus? Uh, flip the coin for us, Sidira. What would the onus on the employer be? Because you've already said, well, some employers may have forgotten about you. Or some employers are hoping to never hear from you again. But what is their actual obligation? If an employer has issued a layoff during um, the pandemic, and now that uh, that legislation is coming to an end, those protections are coming to an end, what an employer is required to do is to reach out to those employees to offer termination packages if employers are not intending to recall you back to work or to confirm that you've resigned and moved on Mm -hmm. to find a new job. That is what employers should be doing. I think a lot of employers are hopeful that that an employee has gone on to find new work. But even if that is the case, if if the employee didn't resign, they may very well still be entitled their minimum statutory entitlements, which could be weeks and weeks of pay. In some cases, if you're a long-term employee, it could be up to six months or more of pay. So all of this is predicated upon your having been laid off by because of the pandemic. That's the setup for what could be a pretty tasty payday. That's for sure. So I've seen two buckets of employees, Sterling, the ones that wanted to take action the moment they were laid off when the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. And the other bucket, the other bucket were those that said, I'm going to sit and wait it out. I might find some freelance, I might do some gig work, I might just take a long extended vacation because I have my savings. And that latter bucket, they very well might want to look into whether or not they have a job to return to. And even if you don't feel like returning to that job, your employer might should or should expect a knock on their door for the entitlements um, you are entitled to now. So it's definitely a worthwhile conversation for people to look back at what they were doing at the beginning of the pandemic, look back at any documentation your employer may have provided you, especially if you were laid off, right. and ask them questions about your entitlement. Well, and that's the key too, isn't it? It's, it's some kind of paper trail is really critical to uh, some positive resolution on your part, isn't it? That's true, but we definitely know that a lot... I'm sorry, my little one's in the background. Oh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, what we know for sure is that employers, some did, did what they were supposed to do. And what that means is they were supposed to issue layoff notices. Others just called employees up saying, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, unfortunately we're shutting our doors. So some of that paperwork may not be there. But as long as you can show you were employed... And even if your employer didn't lay you off in the way they probably should have, that doesn't mean you can't get damages now. So even if the paperwork isn't perfect, still time to ask questions, still time to re-engage with your employer, see if there's a job available for you. If there isn't a job available for you, you may very well be entitled to damages as, as a result of what it would now effectively be the government would have to back this up. It would be a termination. Interesting stuff. Now, Sanira, I want to just expand the conversation to another category of individuals who may have uh, suffered adversely uh, through the pandemic, and those are people who were affected by vaccine mandates. For example, if you were employed by a company that insisted you be a vaccinated employee or go away, and you chose, well, I'm not going to be vaccinated, so I guess I guess I have to go away. What's the upshot of that situation these days, now that vaccine mandates have been rescinded in most jurisdictions. I think it still will go down to the essence of the role that you were doing. At the time, if you were terminated because you couldn't do your role at the time, meaning the mandate was in place, right. and you had to, you know, uh, you were a client-facing or you were a, 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 
front um, line worker, you're in healthcare, um, you might have frustrated yourself out of your own role, Sterling. So that might be that might not be enough to carry the day just because vaccine mandates are, are shutting down now. If at the time you were not able to do your work, an employer might very well have been in the right to let you go. But what we have seen, which is interesting, is that employers have imposed vaccine mandates for all employees, including those that can work remotely. Mm-hmm. And I think those employers will have some liability here because if you can work remotely from the comfort of your home, you are not exposing yourself to others. Right. Um, placing uh, those people on a very long unpaid administrative leave or terminating them could very well uh, now, as these vaccine, vaccine mandates are a thing of the past, could absolutely lead to, again, termination packages for these non-vaccinated employees. Because as you, you and I both know, nobody's asking the vaccine question anymore. You're not walking into a restaurant or to, or, or to work where anybody's asking about your vaccine status. status That's right, yeah. Inclu- including at, at the airport and for travel. So because it's a thing of the past, if employers have sort of um, let employees go across the board, not taking into account the essence of their actual employment, um, there could very well be a, a small but robust group of, of uh, remote workers in particular yeah. that um, could be entitled to uh, damages now. What's the traffic like in the courthouse these days, Sunira? Are we starting to see litigation and uh, court cases now coming up where specifically related to issues surrounding the pandemic, or are we still a little ahead of that from the court perspective? We're certainly seeing court decisions trickle in, Sterling. Vaccine mandates are still murky. We don't know which way the courts are going to go, at least in Ontario. We have seen the way courts have gone when it comes to the pandemic. Some courtrooms have certainly uh, said that the pandemic is not going to lead to increased damages in in every case. It's not going to be seen as an exceptional circumstance. I think many courtrooms are sympathetic to the plight of, of business owners and not going to uh, increase damages as a result of those terminations. But but the litigation uptake is certainly there showing. And of course, we're seeing, and I'm writing about it this week, huge job losses in the tech sector. We're seeing thousands of employees yes. being lost. Spotify. Yeah. Exactly. We Shopify, Shopify yeah. at Amazon. At Amazon. Um, so the job, sort of the labor shortage we thought we were seeing in Canada, well, that's about to turn on its head with all of these terminations, in particular in that sec- sector where we're going to see employees flooding the market and litigation is going to be very, very busy. Indeed it is. And you're going to be a very busy person. Sanira, thanks for this. The column, friends, is employees laid off during the pandemic may be on the brink of a big payday. Sanira writes for the national newspapers, Post Media, every week. She is with Workly Law in Toronto. And Sanira, please allow us to apologize to your personal assistance in the background there uh, for interrupting her Saturday morning. And uh, thanks ever so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great Saturday. The uh, big story in the uh, financial papers this week is a new study from the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. It's called Thriving or Surviving. And one of the findings that really jumped off the pages for us was roughly one in four Canadians feel worse off financially than they did a year ago. And over one in three 
are optimistic they'll be better off financially a year from now. Money-related stress remains high. Almost two-thirds of Canadians agreeing they worry about money. And, of course, you look at the numbers and you go shopping and you got pretty good reasons to be worried about money. Here to talk about inflation and the financial stress that results from it is Mike Braga. Mr. Braga is a senior vice president and licensed insolvency trustee with BDO First Call Debt Solutions. Mike's on the line from Kitchener, Ontario. Good morning, Mr. Braga. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you along with us, Mike. This Any of the numbers in this uh, survey, and it's quite fresh, any of them surprise you? You're, you're in the business of dealing with people with financial stress and difficulties in their lives and see it every day. Did any of the new findings uh, surprise you at all? The, the new findings are not surprising. The surprising piece with respect to these numbers is that they're just coming out now. We've been going through a major, a major international crisis with the pandemic for the last two years, and from a financial perspective, a lot of uh, a lot of our finances kind of were saved in terms of all of the expense reducing, uh, all of the mandatory expense reducing that was happening with with the lockdowns and shutdowns, and we weren't traveling as much, we weren't uh, spending as much in terms of commuting and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So for the last two years, we were we were kind of thinking that you know what we're going to make it out of this pandemic, and it's not going to take the financial hit. But now, as, as things are returning to normal, the economy is opening up. We're commuting more, all of that kind of stuff. We're actually seeing the impact that the last two years has had, uh, and it doesn't help that inflation is increasing at a dramatic rate. We also have the geopolitics that are happening, sure. with everything happening in the Ukraine. So all of that is, is happening, and Canadians are starting to feel it very personally right now. So we're kind of getting a delay effect, too, as, as I'm summarizing what you've just told us, Mike. And, and, and again, probably no surprise, given the fact that you've been keeping an eye on things for the last couple of years, but people who have been struggling and just kind of really working hard to keep their, their heads above water, uh, are, some of them just aren't quite cutting it, right? Absolutely. And it's been a really, really, it has been a tale of, a tale of two pandemics. For many Canadians, you know, through the pandemic, they were able to save. They were able to, to add into their emergency savings. So right True. now they've got a little bit of a buffer. But for other Canadians who saw their jobs being cut, who were struggling over the last two years and, and had to deplete already their savings and, and start dipping into the credit and, and amassing credit card debt to make things survive, you know, it's a very different story. And for them, the situation is becoming dire. Yeah. And you talked about, uh, again, things more or less returning to normal. Thank goodness, Mike. But, you know, normal for a lot of Canadians means debt. Uh, according to this new survey from the Chartered Accountants, roughly half the Canadian population has debt. And of that group, about 68% are concerned about it. And I think concerned is a kind word. Some of them are struggling mightily, aren't they? Absolutely. And so, you know, to put it in context, going into the last two years, the average Canadian was owing about $30,000 of unsecured debt. Uh, and, and so now when we're looking at the numbers, we are seeing that that number is actually increasing. And so, you know, we have added to that debt over the last two years, or many Canadians have. And so with things, with things changing and with the prices increasing at the grocery store, at the gas pumps, Servicing that debt has become unmanageable. And so now is the time to start taking a hard look and thinking about what can we do to restructure that debt. 
So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the warning signs. I mean, there, there are some households that uh, they're beyond warning signs. It's clear and painfully obvious what's going on. But if you're kind of in that situation, Mike, where you're starting, I mean, again, it's just struggling with inflation and everything costs more. So already we're not buying that anymore. And we're going to double up on this because it's half the price of the stuff we're not going to buy anymore. And we're already right. making those adjustments in our lives. But even despite that, some warning signs are starting to flash. What should we be watching for? So, so first and foremost, if you're, if you're one of the 40% of, of individuals in British Columbia that are stressed out about your finances, that's a huge warning sign. And it's, it, it is an indication that you need to start getting, you need to go have a financial check-in with the financial advisor. Hmm. Whether it's a licensed insolvency trustee, your financial planner, hmm. somebody at the bank, you need to just get that health check because what the one concerning piece of the surveys that are coming out is while we are in this situation and people are stressed out about their debt, they're overly confident about their their own abilities to manage the debt. Right. So 80% of Canadians are suggesting that, you know, they have the, the tools and knowledge available to actually, you know, survive the next six, six months to a year. And without... Without guidance and expert advice, that may not necessarily be the case because what we're seeing is historically what we're doing in order to survive is to actually increase our debt loads. That's not the strategy. So first and foremost, if you're stressed out, it's time to check in. Indeed. So if you skip. I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say, uh, and, and, and if you're doing things like, for example, using uh, cash advances on one credit card to pay off the minimum payment on another credit card, that would be a pretty clear warning sign that things aren't going swimmingly. Absolutely. And if your month-to-month balances are increasing and have increased over the last six months, you know, so you're not even, you're not even tackling the principal on your debt. You know, that's a warning sign. If you're, if you're avoiding your mail or the telephone call or telephone calls because you're afraid of collection agents, yeah. you know, that, that's a huge warning sign. The other warning sign that people neglect is actually talking to your spouse or significant other about, about finances or those conversations have stopped. What we're finding is when people start getting into financial difficulty, they, there's a level of embarrassment that happens. And so you just start communicating with everybody, including the people that are closest to you. So if that's happening in your relationship, you know, it's time to, to, to get advice and, and to start looking at your finances a little bit closer. Yeah, and communication really is a key here too, isn't it, Mike? Because even if you're behind and falling behind and you have creditors who are starting to get a little angry, uh, as long mm-hmm. as you're able to communicate with them, maybe I'm not able to do uh, the payment schedule that you require on time, but look, I can do this. Uh, and if you, as long as there is an element of communication going on, uh, that generally is a lifesaver in term, not necessarily your credit score, but just that whole uh, irritation factor with collection agencies and all that. You don't want to go there. And to avoid that, at least in the short term, let the lender know that you're on it, right? Absolutely, because that's the key piece. I think people start avoiding, and from the collection agent's perspective, what they're thinking is, this individual is avoiding us, but they're not going to be able to, to pay. So they're going to start ramping up their collection activity and, and, and actually look at all of the available resources for collections that are possible, including going to court and getting judgments and garnishing wages and all of those types of things where communication could stave that off. Sure. Um, and, and so we need, to, we need to be careful. The other thing, you know, as we're talking about collection agencies to, to really uh, keep, your, uh, keep the viewers in mind, over the last two years, there was like a collection holiday. 
So Canada Revenue Agency wasn't collecting very aggressively with respect to tax debt. Mm-hmm. Collection agencies were were taking a you know were taking a back seat and not aggressively collecting, uh, and that was mindful of what was happening with the situation. Over the last three months, there has been a change. Collections have ramped up. Canada Revenue Agency is much more active than they have been in the last two years. Right. They're collecting those SERB repayments that many people received. So you, you can anticipate that that's going to happen. And if it does start to happen, again, communication is key. No and kidding. If you, if you are concerned about reaching out yourself, there's a lot of great not-for-profit organizations or licensed insolvency trustees that can assist with some of those conversations. And you talked, Mike, and I think it's a very important point to return to before I let you go. And we're grateful for your time, by the way. Uh, you talked about the embarrassment quotient because, uh, you know, no one likes to, no matter how truthful it is, no one likes to admit the fact that, gee, I really blew it here. I'm really, I'm, I can feel myself sinking. Uh, this is uh, some evidence of not being the brightest uh, star in the system, uh, etc. And so there is a kind of an embarrassment component to all of this that really is an impediment to getting things done. You Somehow or another, you've got to be able to get past that and sit down with a professional like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee. How much does it cost? If you're This matters, Mike. If you're sinking under the water and you've got no money to deal with and you want to talk to a pro about how to resolve your situation, how much does it cost to have that conversation with someone like you? The initial consultation is free of charge, and the purpose of that consultation is to get a sense as to where people are at and then to chart a path and go through all of the options that are available to to, to the individual. A licensed insolvency trustee must go through all of the options that are available, and so that's the key. So, you, And we're government-regulated, so the the key there is it's a no-judgment atmosphere where right. we're going through and we're coming up with a plan at the end. It's you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, you, you have that free consultation and it, it's not something for you. That's fine. There, there's no obligation. So that's the key here. And in terms of the embarrassment component, people feel like they're the only ones that this has happened. Yes. To, or, you know, they're all alone. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I can tell your viewers is life happens. And the majority of people I see are they're not in debt because they were living life high on the hog, uh, you know, what's happened is uh, there's been a life situation, job losses, medical issues, Mm -hmm. those types of things. That's the majority of people that I see on a daily basis. And, you know, the sooner people can come in, the more options that are available. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is because of the shame and the concern about in that embarrassment, um, they're waiting too long. And at that point, you know, we're we're only looking at the legal legislative options. Right. this, uh, but I can advise people, and my last piece of advice, the sooner you can get in, the more options are available. Interesting stuff, and very excellent advice, too, Mike. Thanks so much for giving up a little time to, to share that good advice and your knowledge with us here in Vancouver this morning. Great to have you aboard. Mario Canseco joining us from Research Co. Mario, good morning. Good morning. Great to be here with you, Sterling. Well, it's great to have you with us. So answer the poll question, sir. Are you traveling or is this a staycation summer, Mr. Canseco? Well, we were hoping to go to Mexico and visit family. I am originally from there and so is my wife. Uh, But we are uh, one of the thousands of Canadians who don't have a passport that has been renewed. So it'll be a staycation. A staycation, like it or not, kind of summer, huh? 
Exactly. So you've been uh, polling Canadians on the matter of pipelines for a few years now. And the latest survey that you released just a couple of days ago, specifically the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, uh, which has been quite strongly opposed, particularly here in Western Canada, you're seeing some changes in that dynamic. Let's talk a little bit about the numbers, first of all, Mario, and then the reason behind some of the changes. Well, we significantly uh, we have a significantly larger number of British Columbians who are in favor of the decision to reapprove the uh, TMX pipeline. Fifty-one uh, percent of BC residents believe that the federal government made the right decision. This is up six points from when we asked in October. In Alberta, the numbers continue to be strong at sixty-nine percent. So essentially, what we have here is a situation where the level of animosity towards the pipeline is certainly decreasing. Uh, Now we have only 33% of BC residents who believe that we should do absolutely anything that is necessary to make sure that the project doesn't happen. This is down from 41% in October. And even before this was approved by the federal government, uh, the numbers were significantly higher on this question. So the more time goes by, the more people seem to warm up to the idea that the pipeline is happening. So, Mario, let's talk about the reasons why people might be rethinking the matter. And I don't know how deeply you got into it with the specific questions asked in this poll. But, you know, geopolitics has certainly changed since you last surveyed these people in October. Might that have factored into some changing decisions? Well, there are a couple of things that are certainly in the back of the minds of residents, both in Alberta and in B.C. Obviously, the situation in Ukraine is changing minds. Uh, We also have a lower uh, level of support, if you will, for the notion uh, that this is going to be bad, that there will be an accident, that this is just something uh, that is going to go uh, not as well as many British Columbians would believe it would. Mm-hmm. But there's also a significantly higher level of people who believe that this is going to create jobs. 78% in Alberta, 71% in BC. This is sub six points in BC. So the notion that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to create hundreds of jobs for residents is certainly one of the reasons for people to be uh, more likely to support it or to uh, side with the federal government on the decision that they made a few years ago. Interesting, because First Nations has support for the pipeline project has also been contingent upon the fact that there will be many jobs for many First Nations uh, as the pipeline crosses their territories and beyond. And so are we seeing uh, improvements or changes in those numbers as well? We are. You know, one of the things that we definitely have to notice is the moment in which everything changed, and to me it was 2018, uh, when the government decided that they wanted to actually purchase this particular project, um, there was a sense from residents, and this is at the time when Justin Trudeau was very popular, this is three years into the majority mandate that he got in 2015, right. when 35% of voters in British Columbia supported the Liberal Party, the highest level that they had in this century. So a lot of people reacted very positively to the fact that Justin Trudeau said, well, I think this is in the best interest. We're going to continue doing things for the environment. But we believe that if we buy this pipeline, things will be a little bit easier. And British Columbians reacted very positively to that. The moment that the Kinder Morgan brand was taken out of this project, 
and the federal government became involved, that's when everything changed. Ah, now I, I need to ask you about another pipeline that uh, has uh, disappeared, essentially, courtesy of the Trudeau government, and that was the Northern Gateway Pipeline that would have seen uh, petroleum products from Alberta uh, piped across to Prince Rupert and exported to the world and beyond. What's, uh, what support, if any, exists for the Northern Gateway? Any changes there at all? Well, this was one of the biggest surprises of the survey. We asked this in October of 2021, and we had 41% of British Columbians who thought that it was a good time to reconsider the Northern Gateway. Uh, In late July of 2022, this number is up to 46%. So we're getting closer to that 50% mark as far as people wanting to do something about the Northern Gateway. Mm -hmm. When the government said that they weren't going to do this, it wasn't uh, a fait accompli. It was essentially, you know, we will be able to revise this if there's a way in which we can get First Nations involved, if we can change the way in which the engagement of this project was done, then it's something that we could consider. So to have it at 46% certainly bodes well for those who want to see this happening, because we do see some momentum for this project, even if we go back to 2016, 2017, when most people were saying that they didn't want this in their neighborhood. Yeah. Mario, uh, only a minute left, and I want to talk LNG for a moment. Uh, Europe is going to be in serious difficulty come this winter, and they're going to need uh, vast quantities of LNG. Canada not in any kind of position to help out in the short term, but we certainly are long horizon. Any thoughts on, uh, did you deal with LNG, liquefied natural gas, in your poll at all? Not on this one, but we asked about LNG a couple of years ago, and one of the things that we noticed was uh, the fact that people continue to see LNG as a significantly cleaner fuel. Mm -hmm. And this certainly helps the level of support that we've seen, particularly here in BC, but also throughout Canada. The difficulty with LNG has been the start and stop, the start and stop. The fact that the Christie Clark government really wanted to do this, the John Horgan government sort of dealt with it Sparingly, we haven't had the efforts that were required in order to have the capabilities of exporting LNG right now in 2022 that were promised back in 2016. Indeed. Mario, always a pleasure to have a moment of you uh, on a weekend, particularly taking the pulse of the province and uh, sharing the information and your findings with us. It's always been a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.